Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen from the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. Hey, Hui. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello. Hello, Sean. How's it going, Guy? Oh, just peachy. Good. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Wes Willard and Nathaniel Snyder. If you'd like to show your support for the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Guy, what's your first question? I've got the first question. I've actually got a funny story to tell. Do you want to hear a funny story? Yeah, shoot it, man. Throw it at us. So, remember a couple, not the Slash show, but the show before that, so it would have been episode 91, we talked about sharpening and Shapton glass stones. Yes. So, okay, just so everybody knows what a Shapton glass stone is, it's a Japanese water stone, and on the back of it, there's a very thick piece of tempered glass. The idea of the tempered glass is to help the stone stay flat. Yeah. Okay. So you've got, you know, this flat piece of glass and the water stone sits on top of it. So a buddy of mine, <laughs> he got, he had uh, some kind of coupon or something. And he ended up, he, he bought a set of three Shapton glass stones for $230, which is a great buy. Yeah, I think he got one thousand, four thousand, and eight thousand. Yeah, and nice. those things are over a hundred dollars a piece. So yeah. he got a really good deal, but he got them and he started to play with it and he couldn't get his he couldn't get his chisel sharp and he couldn't. He's like, they're just not working, and he's like, he's like, what the hell's going on? So he was trying to sharpen them with the glass on the back. <laughs> I, I thought that, that was what was going to happen. It's like <laughs> the, the only thing is that he was trying to sharpen out the glass. Can you believe that? It's funny, Zach. He's going to hear this, and he told me about it. I said, "Can I talk about it?" He said, "Yeah, he's he's okay with it." But is that is that funny or what? Hey, everything's got got a grit to it, so he would have gotten yeah. sharp eventually. Yeah, eventually. he would have got yeah, <laughs> <laughs> taken a long time. <laughs> All right. Um, my first question is from Carol with a K. It says, hi, guys. Love the show and the chemistry between you guys. I'm fairly new to the woodworking world with previous experience as a finisher. Now I move to making my own furniture line. Cool. I have three questions for you guys. And I'm going to hit all three questions. I think they're fairly short. Any tips for cross-cutting plywood? How do you guys keep the shop organized with the leftovers of material? And if budget were not an issue, what would you buy first? A Festool track saw or a saw stop cabinet saw? And he's got a thing on there. He says, I mostly work with sheets of plywood. So these are kind of all encompassing in the same questions. Like how is a good way to cut plywood? What do I do with all the extra crap I've got over and I cut a lot of plywood. Should I get a cabinet saw or a Festool track saw? So hmm. my first recommendation is that any tips for cross-cutting plywood? 
and that would be the festival track saw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you, especially if you cut on, like I buy those foam, those foam uh, insulation boards. They were, well, at one time I've bought one in a while. They were like eight, nine bucks at the home store. Yeah. And I cut them into thirds long ways and I put duct tape on them so I can fold them up and put them against the wall. But I lay those out and I put that on the, the plywood on those sheets and then mm-hmm. the track saw between the blade guard or the, I should say the, 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 the rip strip yep. on the track and the little blade guard that goes down over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get any tear out at all yeah. with plywood cross cutting it using that method. Um, and if you're doing a lot of plywood, I, I highly recommend getting the, the track saw before a, a cabinet saw, whether it's a saw stop or whoever. Um, if that's your main thing, I yeah. set up a trick plywood station with the, with the track saw. Mm-hmm. And as far as keeping the shop organized with leftovers, unfortunately, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> um, every now and then, you just have to let it go. Let it go. Yep. Close your and eyes and th- throw it away. And throw it all out. Don't don't look at it and say, uh, I'm going to get this one. <laughs> and no, just throw it out. Get rid of it. I usually get rid of anything that isn't over... Are, are is under 23 inches wide as far as sheet goods go. Yeah. If it's under 23 inches wide and under three foot in length, I get rid of it because I can't make a cabinet side out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I, I toss it. Yeah. I mean, that's hard too, man. I, yeah. I keep some of that stuff around for jigs. Yeah. Yeah. But I've got so much stuff I keep around for jigs. You just got to get yeah. rid of it. You do. You do. 100%. And uh, every now and then when I do a cabinet, something or other, I'm building some type of cabinet with plywood, um, I will uh, I will get rid of all of my scrap plywood because I know after that build I'll have more scrap plywood. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you, and I, I tend to throw it in a corner and you know put a bunch of bigger pieces in front of it. And I really don't I don't realize how much I have. Yeah. And last weekend or weekend before last, I was uh, making room to build these uh, miter saw cabinets, and I just threw a bunch of crap away that I just mm-hmm. too small to do anything with. And yep. I was like, look, I need to just throw it away. I've been keeping some of this stuff for years, thinking I'm going to use it. I'm not. It just looks crappy and it's in the way and and all of that. But to cover what Carol said, uh, any tips for cross cutting plywood? Yep. I agree a hundred percent with the guy. Get you a nice, uh, track saw. Yeah. Um, I have the Makita, but I use the festival tracks. That works great. I will say I am having an issue with slight tear out right now. And I think it's because I've not replaced my blade since I've purchased the track saw. So I think it's time for a new blade. The, I know a lot of guys that have the festival saw that buy the Makita tracks, not the other way around. Um, I, well, I bought the, well, it came with the 55 inch uh, rail. It wasn't exactly perfectly flat uh, and it's hit or miss from what I've gathered. And so I bought a second 55 thinking I could join the two uh, Mm. to get a longer rail, 110 inches or whatever. And no matter, it it was just a struggle getting those to be, you know, perfectly straight. 
and mm-hmm. I just fought with it. So I ended up buying the Long Festival track, with, and I got a really good deal on, I think I got free shipping on it, which was a, it saved me a lot of money, and a pretty good deal on the track itself. But the, the thing about it is it's, it's flat, um, it's perfect, and I've just heard, and, and from what I've got two, two Makita tracks and one Festool track, so I can look at both of them and I can see, okay, the Festool track is just better quality than the Makita tracks that I have. That may not be the case for all of them. They're, I've heard they're hit or miss from the reviews that I've read, but I just wasn't going to take a chance on getting one of those really long Makita tracks, it not be flat, and then have to mm. send it back, because these things come in like plywood <laughs> boxes. They're oh, so yeah. long. They're so long, yeah. Yeah, so... I was like, no, I'll just get the festival track. And I love the track. It's perfect, perfectly straight, flat, everything. Um, but I need to replace the blade and that'll fix my my uh, tear out issues. Uh, and yeah, I agree with Guy on number two. Um, how do you keep the shop organized with the leftovers? Find a size that works for you and anything smaller than that, throw it out. And again, I agree with Guy. Since you're dealing with sheet, good, sheet goods uh, or plywood and stuff on number three, I'd go to a good saw set up like track saw set up like you said so i agree with what what guy said 100 he yeah, nailed it tra- on this one track saw 100 what about a cabinet saw with the slider on it yeah sliding cabinet saw uh yeah. our slide we have a slider at work mm-hmm. to cut plywood effectively which it does mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that thing has a 10 foot throw yeah it takes up literally over almost 20 feet from really? from oh, stem yeah. to stern it's huge i'm wondering if the uh the saw stop uh what the what what is it uh, the sliding yeah, so attachment sliding yeah yeah i wonder how i don't think it's 10 foot it's probably oh, i think no, it's no, i think no. it's probably like 50 inches or something that's mostly for cross cutting yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah i can i, I can if i had like that. A full kitchen of cabinets to make. I could break down the plywood in less than an hour on that slider. Oh, uh, the one it's, at work. Yeah, it's so it's it's a big, huge saw. You just throw a piece of plywood up in there, zip, 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 zip. You're done. And yeah. something tells me that if you add together a, a festival track saw setup plus a saw stop cabinet saw, you still may not get enough money to get to get a big slider like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, the sliders are really expensive. The big sliders yeah. are really expensive. But there's people out there, you know, like um uh Ramon Valdez that's got one of the 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 hammer sliders and he loves that thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure it doesn't have the same throw that yours does at work. No, no, but still it it helps when you're 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 breaking stuff down and I, I it's not going to help with a, a full sheet of plywood and that's my point yeah mm-hmm. so to do a full sheet of plywood i you know when i when i'm breaking down plywood here in the house it takes time but yeah i still use just use my track saw i still just use my track saw i like the idea of having it uh small you know you bring in the tool up to it yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm wrestling. Go ahead, guy. I was going to say, and you only have to cut it once. It's not like you break it down into smaller chunks and then recut it with the cabinet, the the table saw. Yeah. You're cutting it once and Mm -hmm. you're done. I do, anyways. I'm at, I'm, 
I'm currently in a similar boat and I'll talk about this at the end of the episode about what we're working on. But yeah, I'm, I'm breaking down the ply. I got 11 sheets of ply that I got to break down <sighs> and I purchased, um, TSO parallel guides for yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Game changer, game yeah. changer for me. Very nice. But yeah, you're right. It's, uh, the only parts that I'm having to take to the table saw are the pieces that I have cut out left over for like drawer boxes, because yeah. I just want to make sure that I measure the inside of the cabinets before I cut those pieces, but everything else is straight off the, uh, the cat. Are you cutting those ball. on the miter saw or the crosscut sled? What the drawer parts? Yeah. No, I'm just talking like cutting them to width and length and then just, I'm going to be using uh, pocket holes to join them. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking like the, for length, are you cutting those on the. Oh, the, I'm the cutting those. Uh, I'm cutting those on the, um, that's a good question. I haven't thought that far ahead yet. Um, no, definitely not the miter saw. It's on the floor. <laughs> um, yeah. So the table saw using a crosscut slide of sorts. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm asking, I, I, I was working with one of the guys today and we were making um, these two small cabinets. Mm-hmm. This is a short story. And we're making the cabinets and they were, they're little sample cabinets. So they're only 12 inches deep or 11 inches deep because they had a face frame, 11 and a quarter. And... I said, well, we need to cut these to length. And he goes, yeah. So he, he started to set up the big slider for it. And I'm like, no, just use the... Miter saw? Miter saw. And he goes, no, I'm used to using... And you know what it what? is? The guy does not... He's built stuff at home. He does not have a Festool Capex. You, you guys have one at, at work? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we've got we've got everything we have. He, he didn't he didn't trust the accuracy. <laughs> no, because he he doesn't think he, he doesn't think like that. He's yeah. he's been conditioned over the years not to trust his miter, miter saw, saw. Yeah, for furniture ready cuts. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. But I said no, no. Just if it's under ten uh, under twelve inches, yep. Cut them on the miter saw because it's perfect every time. And he's like, oh, really? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it's, like I said, just, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Was he surprised so, when he, <laughs> obviously he was surprised. Okay. I don't think he was surprised, but he was more like, yeah, you're right. And, and it, 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 like I said, he just doesn't think like that. Yeah. Because he's not used to having a, a, a saw like that. Yeah. So anyways, I think that's it for the question. That was a good question. That was. Um, that was it. Who's got yours. the next one? Yep. We. It's yes. on to you. It is on to me. And this one is from Mike. He says, hey, my name is Mike from Odd Materials Woodworks. I have been really enjoying your podcast. I have been following all three of you for a while. Anyways, in listening to some of your past podcasts, you've discussed the MFT with the flip up arm and how you don't use it anymore. You just use a set of dogs with the rail clip, which I have been thinking of switching to. My question is, how would you approach making repeatable cuts on an MFT style table? So I want to preface this by saying that I don't have the flip arm. I never did have the flip arm, uh, the setup for the MFT. What's the actual name for it? Do you know, Guy? Uh, The MFT flip up arm. That there you go. It's the flipper. The flipper. Uh, And for those of uh, that are listening that don't know, uh, that allows the 
MFT to kind of be like a crosscut station of sorts. Um, and there's a fence that material rides along. Uh, and then this track, this flip up arm flips down and you have your track saw that goes along it. Uh, to make repeatable cuts on that style of MFT setup, there's a there's a fence on there um, and you, you just flip that fence arm down and you can butt the material up against it. When I had my own multifunctional outfit assembly table thing going on, I actually had made a fence out of some aluminum extrusion. And from that, you could um, put a uh, like a stop block or I actually did make a flip arm like my shop made flip arm. Uh, what is it? Uh, stop on it. Um, so that's how if I wanted to, I could do that with my moat. Um, are there how, how would you because I know you have a MFT guy, but I also don't think you actually use it for in that kind of fashion. But if you had to, how would you, you know, make repeatable cuts on that type of setup? Because, you know, well, Mike wants to kind of go that direction. I, I really don't have an MFT. I've got I've got an MFT top. Yeah. That yeah. I made my own outfeed table out of. Mm-hmm. And I also, I don't use the flip arm anymore. Did you have it? I, I did buy one, yes. Okay. At one time. I still have it. Um, mm-hmm. But I started using the the Quas dogs, Quas dogs mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with the rail dogs to use the cross cuts. To get a repeatable cut, all I do is I take a board mm-hmm. and I clamp it down at the other end where I need it to be. I can uh, on the table I, itself. On the table itself, yeah, because yeah. it's attached to the table saw. So mm-hmm. I can take a board, hang it off the end of the, the table saw, and clamp it so I can cut. To, uh, I think it's like six and a half feet lengths of material repeatably hmm. doing that method. I just take the piece of plywood, put it on there. I know I'm 90 degrees for the, the dogs and the rail dogs for the fence. Right. And I just move the thing back until I hit the stop. That's just a, you know, nothing more than a clamped board. Mm, yeah. And that's yeah. how I do it. In most cases, it doesn't have to be like super accurate. I mean, the difference between 68 inches and 68 and an eighth inch is nothing to me. What's more important that all, if I need the two pieces to be 68, whatever, that they're both the same size. Yeah. So as long yeah, as they're both yeah, 68 yeah, and yeah. an eighth, I don't care you, if they're You need consistency is what you need. Yeah, right. yeah, right. exactly. Repeatability. And, and I think I might've uh, not uh, stated this in the question, but he, he does want to use a set of dogs with the rail. Did I say that? And he's no. thinking switching to that. Yeah. So he wants to use the, I guess, what we know in this, in, you know, hosts of the podcast is Quaz Dogs, what I think was the first one that I ever saw of these dogs. And the rail clips or Quaz Dogs that basically have clips on them that clip onto the um, uh, rail. Yeah. Rail. Exactly. Um, so I, I'm not familiar with this. So let me sound dumb for a moment. So you got these two dogs that are in, uh, that you put in holes and the dog holes that are um, orthogonal to each other. Yep. 
Yep, there's that word. And Ooh. so then you just clip the clip on the back back edge of the of the rail, nope. uh, which which pulls it up against these dogs that keeps the rail in the same position. So that allows so, you to pick it up and move the piece, slide the next one in, slide it back down to make your cut. Yeah, the rail dogs actually have a a square head screw on the top of them, okay, that, and they the go profile. into they go into a track that's on the like a T track that's underneath the mm-hmm. rail. Yep. Yep. The, so TSO makes a version that clips onto the okay. rail. That's maybe, but, but, but it's ultimately the same, same concept. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen the TSO cause I spent some time on their site the other day when I bought that stuff, but okay. Yeah, they cool. Got cool stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, aluminum. Yeah, that that works too. I didn't think about just using like your typical in guy situation, just like, doesn't have to you know you don't need a fence right because you're using the dogs you just need a place to butt up against yeah there's uh, the a couple of different systems there's the claws dogs with the rail dogs there's also the parf dogs mm-hmm. uh which were designed by peter Parfit over in the uk yep uh, i've got those also i prefer yep. the rail dogs yeah myself TSO um, has them now. TSO, I think Woodpeckers a makes a set. Seneca Woodworking yep. makes them. A bunch mm-hmm. of different people make them, but they're all basically the same things. A different way of doing the same thing. So instead mm-hmm. of a fence, you just use multiple dogs to push the piece up against, and then you get your you got your fen- your uh, track that's perpendicular. Correct. Bada bing boom. You just need to stop yep. to hold it in place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a really it's a really great you know for limited space. But cool that's setup. the that's the the beauty of the MFT top. Yeah, you've got those holes spaced thirty two millimeters apart at exactly mm-hmm. ninety degree angles to each other, mm-hmm. if you so choose. And you can get a bunch of them. You can get a couple of them. Mm-hmm. They fold up. Yeah, they're neat. Well, I hope that helps, Mike. Sean, you got the next one. All right, this is from Nate. Hey, guy, Hui, and Sean. I just picked up a pair of Mitutoyo calipers. I use a straight edge and feeler gauges to set up machines like my joiner. Do you guys use precise tools like calipers, feeler gauges, and straight edges when building your furniture? It seems like they could be really useful. All three of you have that engineering type of brain, Hui being an actual engineer. If you do use them in furniture, what do you use them for? Or are tools like calipers overkill for woodworking? Cheers, Nate. Well, I um, just a few examples of what I use. Um, I use calipers for measuring something like a thickness of a tenon, especially if I'm using a router bit for the mortise. Uh, so if I'm using, you know, if I need a, a quarter inch tenon, um, I try to get it close with calipers. Obviously I can use hand tools to, uh, like a, a shoulder plane to make that fit better. Um, but I try to get, try to look at the calipers somewhat when I'm setting the thickness of the tenons, when I cut those at the table saw with the dado stack, uh, I use dividers for laying out dovetails. Uh, I do use straight edges for making sure that panel glue-ups are nice and flat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'd, obviously, if you try to chase perfection with calipers on every aspect of woodworking, you're probably going to drive yourself crazy. Um, you know, just try to think about how you you can bring the precision of using these tools on certain parts of the, uh, of the build, um, you know, joinery maybe, uh, but for the most part, that's pretty much all that I use calipers for is sometimes checking the thickness of the tenons to get it somewhat close and then use a shoulder plane to fit it. If I'm using something like I was saying, like a standard router bit, a three eighths, half inch, one quarter, 
Um, you know, I do struggle sometimes with, uh, with, you know, not having the best fitting joinery or not being as precise as I want to be. Um, so that's kind of how I use those types of tools. But again, I personally wouldn't chase perfection with these on everything just because that would take out, take a lot of the fun away from me, uh, in woodworking. But, uh, and then there are things like digital readouts on, um, you know, on some of the things like, uh, miter stops I've seen, uh, what's his name? Eric from the Poplar Woodshop. He has a pretty yeah. cool digital yeah. readout on his miter ga- uh, on his mm-hmm. miter saw setup. You can start to bring those type of things for repeatability. Uh, that will that will uh, up your game a little bit as well. Um, but you know, for the most part, that's how I use uh, these type of tools. Uh, nothing too crazy. Uh, Hui, what about you with that engineering mind of yours? Do you use any of these for your woodworking? Uh, you know, you, it's funny you mentioned that because I just used the calipers yesterday as I was um, making some face frames and by golly, I didn't make enough. I thought I made enough material and so I had to go and mill out some more material and I had to have the more material match the old material. So hmm. I ended up using a set of calipers to get them right on, um, you know, within like a couple thousands or something like that. But yeah, I, I use a caliper probably do you, do you more. Have a, do you have a digital readout on your thickness planner? Yeah, I do, and I don't like it. Like, so there's something wrong with it, and I hadn't had the time to figure it out I because know. ultimately I used to use it all the time in my old machine. But for some reason, the one that I got for this, uh, you know, m- I must have set it up wrong or something like that, but I hadn't taken the time to try to figure it out or fix it. So, because I just use my digital calipers. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm using it for. I'm using it. I, I used to not use a digital caliper that much because I had a digital readout on my planner. So, but now I do. So, six and one half dozen the other. But that's really what I use it mostly for. Um, and I've used it for other things as well. Uh, not so much tenon. I kind of go on feel with that. And I also like to use uh, those like. Uh, Brass setup blocks are traditionally what they are, oh, but I have yeah. the woodpeckers versions, which are aluminum, of course. And uh, <laughs> I, I like I like using setup blocks so much with tool setup and whatnot, and feeler gauges, but not so much the digital caliper. I've got a couple things, uh, and it mostly has to do with machine setup. Yeah. So I've got a set of, of feeler gauges. I also have digital calipers. I've also got uh, uh, the A line at jig which is a uh, for the table saw, a, right? It'll do a bunch of different tools. Um, but it's a digital cal or a dial caliper and dial indicator, dial indicator. And it's got a bunch of different attachments for it and you can put mm. it in different machinery. And yeah, I set up a lot of stuff with that. Um, I use calipers actually quite a bit. More than anything else, just because it's easier for me to, you know, if I'm trying to get some material down to one inch, let's say, yeah, it's a lot easier than throwing it. For me, it's easier than throwing a tape measure on it because yeah. I trust it more. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. <clears throat> the only time I really use it as a precision instrument where I'm trying to match something is for inlay. Mm. Since yeah. I got the, the micro fence, which is a, a really well engineered fence for a router. It's also fairly expensive, but it works really well. And the, the problem when you're doing inlay, especially like string inlay, 
is, you know, I like to use a, a router to, to actually route the groove. And I use a 16th of an inch bit, typically. Trying mm -hmm. to get that material exactly 16th inch to fit in that groove is tough. Yep. And that's always the issue. So what do you do? You, you know, you, you make it, it doesn't fit in, it's too big, and you put it through the sander a couple times and see if it fits that way. What I do with that caliper is, is I'll measure that 16th of an inch or I'll measure the, 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 uh, the inlay, the inlay itself. And I've cut it and let's say it's, you know, 16th plus, you know, 128th of an inch, whatever that works out to be. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so that might be an extra five thousandths of an inch. I can take my micro jig or my micro fence and dial Five thousandths of an inch, yeah. and it'll fit perfectly. Yeah, that's what I made. That's the only time I really use any of that for actually woodworking. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yep. Everything else I'm using the calipers just because it's it's easy for me to just slap it on a piece of wood and say, okay, yeah, it's two inches thick. Yeah. Do you set up? And this is just a question. Uh, about what you do day to day do you set up any machine any of the machines in your um, shop at pd yes okay i set up the machines that you know, that are in my department yeah yeah so so is um, that new machine I'm very, I'm very protective of them and we should probably save this for the end of the the show yeah. but okay yeah, we'll talk about it more at the end. There's, of there's one other thing that I wanted to mention about this that I that I f forgot about, and there are times when extremely rare for me. But if I need to cut a piece that is exactly a certain width at the table saw, I will use mm -hmm. digital calipers to mm -hmm. to check that, and then use feeler gauges with a like with a stop block on the opposite side of the fence to move that over just a little bit to try to get to dial in that width of a piece. So I don't, I don't need to do that because I have an anchor fence. Well, that's. <laughs> I also don't need 17 feet to the right of my table saw, but <laughs> no. Um, look, if I had the room, I'd have one, maybe. Oh, but, I'm just teasing. I know. So am I, guy. I know. Um, <laughs> but that's how I would use filler gauges as well. Um, yeah. That's that's a poor man's anchor is just stick them on the right side of the fence put a stop block up against it, loosen the fence, remove the feeler gauge, bump it over a thousandths, two thousandths or something like that and, and dial in your cut. Yep. But, yeah. So mm -hmm. hopefully Nate, that helps. I'm going to move it right along back to guy. What you got for us guy? Right. I have a question from Colin and he says, Hey fellas, hope this is a quick one for you. It may be, it's a long read, but it's, <laughs> I think it's okay. I'm stumped on something and it's making me crazy. I'm making cutting boards. I've got about 10 under my belt at this point. Most of my quality priorities are improving nicely with time and experience, but I have a problem with finishing, specifically grain that raises on my finished product shortly after the board gets put into use. For context, I'm talking about edge grain boards, not end grain boards, edge grain boards. I get a great glue up, scrape them down, finish plane, then on to sanding. I take it to 180 all around, then I raise the grain. I take that down with 220 and then raise it again. I really thought raising the grain twice incrementally would give me an extra level of redundancy against surface issues moving forward. That's a long, that's a run on sentence there, boy. 
I finish, <laughs> I finish with 320, then go with a generous treatment of mineral oil followed by the four to one oil beeswax routine. The fuzziness isn't across the entire board, but there's enough of it there to both justify or mystify and frustrate me. I really put a lot of work into these and I'm trying to get past the, the, the highest quality that I can achieve. Everyone expects a board uh, to need care, but my gut says that sandpaper shouldn't be involved. He's right. What am I overlooking here? Any assistance would be greatly appreciated. Love the show and keep up the great work. So the only thing I, I've, I've, I'm not the, uh, an expert on cutting boards, nor am I an expert on finishing. But I have raised grain once or twice before and knocked it back. I have never raised the grain incrementally with different grits of sandpaper. If I've got a, if I know I'm going to finish at 220, I finish at 220, I raise the grain, I knock it down with 220. Agreed. Um, and then I put the finish on it. And the only time I'm really knocking the grain or raising the grain to knock it down is when I'm using a water-based finish. I do not do that if it's shellac or an oil-based finish. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So, yeah, if you rate, let's see. So it looks like he takes it to 180, raises the grain. So in other words, gets it wet, takes 220 to sand it down, raise it again. Um, and then I'm guessing after he raises it again, he hits it with 320. Um, now, obviously, when you raise the grain, if you sand it a whole lot, you're going to defeat the purpose of raising the grain, which Correct. means it's going to do it again, like I was saying. So, yeah, I I agree with that. I would do the raising of the grain, sand it 320, raise the grain, sand it lightly, and then you can try it again and sand it lightly. But one of the things that I've noticed with making cutting boards, and I just use like an oil wax treatment like the you know the whatever he says in here the beeswax oil is i still get that rough feeling um the like the wood bowl finish and stuff from general finishes that's kind of like a um what is it called the word literally just escaped me but that is kind of like a film finish of sorts that's mm -hmm. going to kind of prevent that raising of the grain yeah you would um, think with a four to one uh, mix of oil to beeswax there wouldn't be any grain raising or fuzziness. No, there wouldn't for that. But when you wash your cutting board, you're going to mm. get that raised grain. Because I, one of okay. my cutting boards, I went that route. And then, of course, after you wash it, it raises the grain. Because that kind of doesn't seal off the surface from that. But something like a wood bowl finish or... So I know some people use armor seal as, you know as a cutting board finish because once it's fully cured, it's, it's non-toxic. I've never done that. I've only heard that. So do your own research, but something like that's going to give a film finish on it. And it's going to prevent the water from getting down to the wood until obviously you cut into it. Um, but maybe that's it too. You know, you're, you're cutting into the wood. It's a cutting board. Yeah, so that's right. Into the, you're cutting into the wood and you're, you're penetrating whatever finishes on there. Yep. And the, the water's getting down into the fibers that way. That's why a lot of cutting boards are end grain instead of edge grain too. You're not going to run into the same problem of, of this. So I would, I would, Colin, I would, my recommendation would be for you to 
potentially look at some different types of finishes um, and, and see if you can can figure that out. But definitely ease up off of the sanding after you raise the grain. You just want to sand it just enough to smooth it back out um, and until you feel it's smooth and then stop sanding it. Otherwise, you're going to sand past it and you're going to just defeat the purpose of that. Uh, and then maybe you have to start looking at doing some in-grain cutting boards and, and give that a go. But those are my two recommendations watch sanding or potentially investigate other types of finishes that work um, and see if you can can figure it out that way. So I think uh, in, in this person's situation that he might be referring to like right after he's applied that finish that maybe he's getting that fuzziness. But if he's talking about getting fuzziness after it's been used, I mean, I would I would expect that to happen because you're cutting through the finish and, you know, you're cutting wood, which is going to make it kind of fuzzy. Uh, so I, I would hope that he's or assume that he's talking about, you know, right after applying that four in one beeswax to oil mixture. Um, but I have really nothing to add. I mean, <laughs> Sean, I went to you and called you when I had to apply stain uh -oh. to ensure that I was properly raising the grain and do it and knocking it back afterwards. So you know, I'm getting my tips from you. Did my, did, I wasn't wrong. Was that the information I no. gave you? <laughs> no, it worked, worked really well. Shoo. Worked really well. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tough thing. If it, if this is happening, Colin, um, dealt with this before, not on cutting boards, but with just using a water-based finish a waterborne finish or whatever you want to call it. And I've never had a problem with it. I raised the grain knock it back, put the finish on it, and I'm good. And cool. uh, an oil beeswax finish should not raise the grain anyways. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's probably right. when he's using it and putting it in the sink to spray mm -hmm. it off and wash it, and, it, and yeah. it kind of, it gets like a gritty feel to it. And mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the downsides of edge grains, and that's one of the downsides of just a beeswax oil type finish is you're not sealing that surface off. So it's literally hitting the surface. Yeah. I have a booze block cutting board and I have an end grain cutting board and the booze block cutting board, which is an edge what grain block? cutting board. <laughs> it's a, it's a brand booze. Um, you didn't make your own. No, I got it before I got oh, it way okay. before I was even a woodworker. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the booze block is edge grain and I have an end grain and the, the booze block edge grain cutting board is always fuzzy. Yeah. So I think that's just the way it is with those type of, even if you were to put, again, I don't do your own research. Even if you were to use something like a film finish on that, you know, it's eventually you're still going to cut through it, you know? So right. cool. Well, we, what do you got for us on your next one? All right. This is a quick question from Michael. What is your method for fixing drift when resawing with a fence on your bandsaw? Uh, I don't, have drift on my bandsaw. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Not that that's a bad thing if you do, but you do have to adjust for it if you do have it. Um, the method of dealing with drift that I know of, that I've seen, is making some type of tall auxiliary fence of sorts. Where I saw it being done is is actually with Alex Snodgrass at the woodworking shows. You know, you used to do those mm -hmm. traveling shows. And he would use the Carter mag fence and he would make a cut and he says, it doesn't matter how much drift you have. If you have drift with this fence, you know, you just, you start the cut 
and you you know you steer it so that it starts straight and, and resawing properly and then you adjust the uh put the mag fence up there and clamp it down so any uh so that's the method i've seen with that mag fence from carter um and i've seen other folks make uh, a similar auxiliary type tall fence you know shop made fence um and attach it with clamps that's the method that i know of that people have done uh to fix drift but as i said again i i don't you know, I just used the fence that came with my saw is a grizzly saw. And uh, because I have it set up that uh, I don't have any drift, you know, I'm able to just use the fence that's squared up to my to my cast iron table. Sean, I think Uh-oh. you used to have like a little bit of drift in your Porter cable, didn't you? Um, I had a little bit and I had I ended up installing the Craig fence on my bandsaw mm-hmm. and it allowed you to uh, adjust it left or right. That was a good fence. Yeah. Yeah. It allowed you to adjust it left or right um in order to offset that. I mean, if it was real drastic, obviously you, it wouldn't you'd have to fix your saw, but you know, if it was off a little bit, I think I could move it, you know, left or right about I think up to a, probably a quarter of an inch or so to help offset that. Um, and I, I mean, I had to do that a little bit no mm-hmm. matter what, cause it wasn't, you know, it was a $350 saw. Um, it, but the, yeah, I just adjusted the fence no matter how, how well I, or how hard I tried and thought that I dialed it in, I still had it. So I adjusted the fence and it, you know, it worked great until, until I got rid of it and got the, uh, the hammer. Yeah. And the hammer doesn't have any drift. No, it it's good. You know, it's, I, put the blade on, um, install the blade well, and, you know, checked it. It was, it's good right out of the, right off the crate. Nice. So good. unfortunately, no help on that one. Yeah. I'm Guy, not going to be much help either because I don't, I, doubt even che- I don't even check for drift. <laughs> yeah. I don't. <laughs> I just yeah. line up my, my rip fence to the miter gauge on the, the saw to make sure it's even with the blade. Yeah. That's it. I, I, I used to years ago, I used to obsess about all that stuff. I just don't care. I just, (laughs) I just set up the, like Sean said, I set the saw blade up properly Yep. and it is what it is. So I just put the the fence on there and it's, you know, in line with the miter, the, the, the miter gauge slot and, Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I push wood through it. I will say if, if, you know, I'm never taking a piece to where like whatever I slice off the bandsaw, I have to use that. I'm always oversizing and hitting it with the drum sander anyway. Sure. Yeah. So just leave yourself a little bit of, a little bit of room if you can't dial mm-hmm. in your saw and, you know, plane it, do whatever you need to do, sand it. Nice. Cool. All right, Michael, I hope that helps. Uh, we are on to the last question to Sean. That's right. And this one is, this is a continuation from last week. This is from Brent. This was the second part of his question from Clean Cut Woodworking on Instagram. Uh, when you buy a new tool, and I'm sorry, when you bring a new tool into the shop, do you find yourself using that tool as an excuse to rearrange your shop, even if it's an upgrade from a tool you already have? I found myself rearranging the, my entire workflow every time I introduce a new tool, even if the one I'm upgrading that's been in a certain spot for years. I hope all has been well with you and your families. Please continue with fantastic content. Thank you for your time. Brent. Um, this is a good question. Uh, when you bring a new tool into the shop, do you find yourself using that tool as an excuse to rearrange your shop? 
Yeah. And, and the reason why I do it primarily is because I'm always going with a larger tool. So I'm needing to yeah. optimize the best way that I can in order to fit it in the shop. So when I got my bandsaw, it was uh, probably triple the size of my old bandsaw. So I needed to make a little <laughs> bit of room for it. So I ended up moving the tools around uh, and clustering them, you know, in the center, I had the joiner planer, the bandsaw and my drum sander. Uh, just because where I had the old bandsaw, I could not put this new one. It was just too large. So primarily yeah. what I'm doing when I get a new tool, it's larger. So I need to figure out the best way to, to fit it next to another tool and look at the in-feed and out-feed requirements of both tools to see if it's going to work. Thankfully, with the bandsaw, you have a, a table that's higher off the ground than a joiner planer. So I'm able to put it in a, in a certain area that's not going to interfere with anything player. else yeah yeah and you know and that also like with my cnc cabinet when i got my cnc machine i made it so that it was a little bit taller than some of the other stuff so that if i'm over there and i'm trying to mess around with some pieces and that are you know if i'm trying to cut a longer piece and make index indexing spots so i can fe keep feeding a piece through there which i never did uh that i wouldn't be interfering with other tools so you know my tip would be if you're bringing a tool in look at the in-feed and out-feed requirements and look at the table height and see if you can overlap or cluster items to see if that helps fit an extra tool in your shop as we all want. Um, yeah, I, 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 I was going to say, I agree with that wholeheartedly, Sean. It, and I've, we've discussed this before where I've said, you know, I really don't care about the quote unquote workflow of my shop. I don't have to fit. have a, I don't have to have a board start here and end up here because it's a two car garage. Yeah. I may have to walk 10 feet. Oh no. So yeah. I really don't care about that. What I care about is exactly what Sean said. If I put this tool in my shop, am I going to have to move it around all over the place just to use it? Do yeah. I have enough in feed and out feed mm -hmm. to use it properly? Because even though my wife parks in the garage, I only have to move my, my table saw, my band saw, and my assembly table out of the way. To, yeah. And it takes me literally three minutes to do this, to set it up and tear it down. Three minutes. Yeah. So I, if, I, I, if I introduce another machine in the shop, I wouldn't want it to where, okay... I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about just being able to use the machine mm -hmm. and not have to move it around to, to get it to work. Yeah. Yeah. So I really worry about one major thing that you do worry about guy is the ability to actually have those tools roll around um, and easily move around if I mm -hmm. need to. But oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't I'm, want to very often, but when I, I do, I I've want got it needs to be easy. On everything everything yeah. can be moved but i don't move it unless i have to absolutely absolutely but again it and it's for that reason because oh well you know maybe maybe you end up wanting to get another tool and so now you have to rearrange everything and i never want that stuff permanently in place it needs yeah. to be able to roll around so i can we maximize sorry i mean didn't mean to interrupt you there no that's okay i'm done um 
I saw a picture of your shop you had posted on Instagram. And I saw one thing that I noticed that was really cool is you don't have your stuff set up like a traditional, like it, it's parallel to the door. Like yours was at an angle on the inside of your shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's pretty neat. Have you noticed any, uh, you know, any workflow differences or any improvements on, you know, efficiencies or space saving tips with having it at an angle like you have it? The, the the main reason was so that the tools had in-feed and out-feed and they didn't interfere with each other. So like, for instance, my joiner is not parallel with my uh, workbench. It, it it sort of like is off at an angle. But the other the reason why I have that is because my table saw had, you know, I wanted such long out-feed for the table saw that I, I wanted to make sure that I could get around that workbench area properly. And so on top of that, I wanted to, you know, make sure that I had at least 10 feet on one side of the joiner and 10 feet on the other side of the joiner. And so by angling it, I got a little bit more in feed and out feed. Cool. Yeah. I noticed that. I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, typically we, it was your post on March 7th. I just happened to notice it was like at an angle and it, that's a really good looking shot by the way. Thanks. I take pride. That's, that's <laughs> nice. Um, Cool. Well, uh, I think now we're going to move on to talk about what we have going on in our shop. And I'm going to pick on Hui. What do you got going on in your shop? I just got, and it's a client build, but I just got uh, eight quarter, quarter sawn and riff sawn walnut that's nine to 10 feet long. Oh my goodness. This is like the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen. I actually had to order it from Pennsylvania and it came in and I did an initial milling of it and it, it looks great. So I got that done. It was, it was heavy stuff. And I actually, uh, uh commandeered my father-in-law to help me with it. And then I'm working on a dresser, a double dresser, six drawer dresser for a client locally. And, uh, I had processed all the plywood, uh, got all the web frame or, dust frames, whatever you want to call them, uh, assembled and have the carcass assembled. And so uh, the next thing I've got to do is assemble the face frames and attach those to the uh, to the cabinets. And that's what I got going on. Cool. Sean, how about or uh, no, let's move uh, it to Guy. Guy? Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry. We'll end it with me. Yeah, I, I really don't have anything going on in my own shop, but at work, we have a lot going on. Um, we are getting a bunch of new equipment and it's started all yesterday where they're taking the old equipment out and bringing the new equipment in. So today we got in our new wide belt sander slash thickness planer. This thing is a beast. Um, it's got a 53-inch helical head in it Jeez. for a planer. Dang. And then it has two oscillating drums for the so belts. So it finishes it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it moves at 60 feet per minute. Is it 50 feet? 60 inches per minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Per minute. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> 60 inches per minute can take off a quarter inch at a time. Wow. Wow. 
It's got like a 40, it's got, I think like five or six motors in it. <laughs> and one of them, one of them is like a 40 horsepower. It's a, it's a 460 volt three phase beast. We had to get a special box put in for it. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. yeah, it is. And we're getting tomorrow. We should have them in the shop. None of this stuff is installed yet. They have to, they have to put all the duct work and everything else. The electrical has yeah. been put in place. But it still isn't attached yet. Tomorrow we're getting in two dust collectors, and these are, you know, big, huge commercial ones. Yeah, we've we've got two already, so this is going to give us a total of four big, huge dust collectors. Um, How many square feet is this shop that you work? Thirty-five thousand. Thirty-five thousand. That's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty large. Um, It's pretty large, and we're getting another jointer for the production side of the shop. I'm not in the production side of the shop. Um, They already have two joiners and two planers and they need another joiner over there. So do you, when you, when you work on a project guy, you know, in, in your home shop, you're, you're basically, you're designing everything you're drawing it. You know, if you draw it up, flattening it milling it doing all that when you work in your shop or at work do you have to do all the flattening and squaring up okay okay yeah because it just i guess because you're saying in production shop and then well they're getting all these there's two two sides to our uh, our shop there's the what they call the production side and Mm -hmm. then there's the the, they call it full custom and that's Mm. where i am is the full i'm i am the full custom department so we make a lot of just tabletops. Yeah. We'll get an order for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 tabletops mm-hmm. wow. or tables. And we're, we're, we're making, we've got a metal fab shop in-house. So we'll make metal bases for them and the tabletops sit on that. So the production shop, all they do is they make tabletops. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Anything that's not a tabletop, I make. Okay. So, so I, you, like, if there's a wood base for a table, I make it. If there's a cabinetry work, I make it. Anything that's not a flat tabletop, I make. And and this is just so I can kind of visualize. So your custom shop has its own milling machines and whatnot. Yeah, we've got a okay. we've got a joint. We've got an eight inch grizzly an eight inch grizzly jointer the production side has two 16s a 12 and they're getting another 12 uh, i've got an eight inch and mm-hmm. a 20 inch grizzly planer which right. is fine but i've got a 20 i've got the i've got a a, a grizzly slider with mm-hmm. a 10 foot throw on it and i've got a 24 inch grizzly bandsaw over there yeah and you know i've got i've got some other stuff too but those are the those are the big tools but if i need anything bigger than i can just go over and use the it's not like i can't use their tools over there right 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 but they're they're two different departments yeah yeah yeah. i get it i get it let me ask you a question about this uh huge planer though Mm -hmm. so 
it has the helical head and the sanding capabilities. Mm -hmm. So would you typically just run it in planar mode to get it down to whatever size and then use the sander for another Uh, part? It it does it all at once. So what we were having to do in the past, we, most of our tabletops are an inch and a half thick. Mm -hmm. And since we're really putting these things together quickly, we glue them up at one and five A's. Yeah. Okay. And there's going to be some, I mean, we use biscuits and all that other stuff, but there's still going to be some irregularities. Yep. So we're trying to get down to a finished thickness of an inch and a half. So if you take a half an inch and we are taking off with each pass of the sander, we take off about 0.3 millimeters. Okay. So it takes 10 to 15 passes through the our old drum sander, which was a nice one. It was a, a 52-inch buttfering, which was a German machine. Very, very nice. Dual drum, you know, oscillating. It did a great job. But it only took off 0.3 millimeters. So to take off an eighth inch... You got to run it through 10 times. Yeah. You've got 20 tables that are 14 feet long. It takes a long time. So you got to put them in, you got to take them out, you got to put it back in, you got to take it out. Yeah. And you have a big stack of them to do. This new machine, we can two, two passes, 16th of an inch at a pass. Yeah. One side, flip it over. Flip it. Yep. Put it through again, we're done. Yeah. So I guess my question was, you wouldn't use a machine like this for planing rough material down to, from four-quarter no. rough down to three-quarter. You're using this for something no. like finished sanding or taking a yeah. piece down like you said. I mean, we buy, our, we buy, we don't buy our lumber, our lumber rough. Oh, okay. We get it skip planed. Yeah. So when we get it, it's 15, one and 15, 16 already. And the... We we still before we put them into you know tabletops, <clears throat> we're taking it down to one and five A's. We're flattening it on the joiner, edge joining it, you know, face joining it, running it through the planer, edge joining it, and gluing them up. And then you go to this. We're not going to use it. We're not going to use it as a planer. We have a planer for that. We'll use right. that to, to finish the tabletops after blow up. Gotcha. Makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess off to me. So yep. what I've been working on is uh, breaking down plywood for these two cabinets. It's been going well. I, I used to cut ply, all my plywood big sheets on the floor with the purple foam. Um, and I've, I just got tired of doing that and uh, it's just much more convenient doing it, not on the floor. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up buying was one of those, I bought a four by four centipede, uh, one of those little centipede oh, stands okay. and I built a uh, plywood frame uh, pocket, hold it together so that I can take it, you know, take it apart when I'm done. And so now I can break down all of my plywood now that I have enough room um, without being on the ground, which has been an amazing improvement, uh, just yeah. makes it easier. And in my opinion, for me, makes it much more accurate. 
because I don't have to fight, move these long rails on the ground. So that was one awesome improvement. And then the next thing that I mentioned earlier, I bought the TSO products, uh, parallel guides and, uh, that with, uh, the track saw has just, I mean, crazy, crazy accuracy for me from the track saw, which, you know, a lot of people do, uh, and a lot of people get using these, uh, type of, uh, setups. It's just, I never had that because, you know, I just never did now that I own that type of, you know, uh, equipment with the, the, uh, TSO stuff. And, and I know there are other companies that sell that kind of stuff as well. They're not, but that's what I have. Uh, mm-hmm. it's just a crazy, the accuracy that you can get from that, from a, a track saw. Um, yeah. I mean, just perfect cuts. So that's made it really interesting and uh, a whole lot better for me. I've still got a lot more plywood to break down, but it's just been, you know, plywood central for me in my shop. And, uh, do, do you mind you, me asking you how much you paid for uh, the sheet of plywood? Uh, yeah. And it, and I, it is, uh, I know we talked about the import, the three quarters import from imported from Vietnam and, uh, or Vietnam, I guess I'm a <laughs> Kentuckian. Um, and the, uh, the other stuff from China, but I paid 60, 65, $66 for three quarter unfinished import and 20, 20, 26, 50 a sheet right now. for a quarter. No, it, it, it's from what I've talked to a few people, that's not, not bad, not terrible. Not bad. No. Uh, yeah. So th- I could have gotten the, um, some non-import ply, but they were out of it. This is all I could get. I don't care if I wanted to, to pay more for better stuff. I couldn't get it. So this is all I could get. And, uh, so yeah, that's what I paid per sheet. Um, the buying two by fours is what irritated me. I mean, I had to pay nine, almost $10 per two by four. And I was like, man, it keeps this up. I'll just rip down some cherry and make my own two by fours. It was almost the same price. Obviously, uh, I wouldn't do that, but, but no, that's what I've been yeah. doing in my shop, just plywood and dialing in those type of tools um, and, and getting the precision that a lot of other folks have that I never had because I just, eh, I'll just eyeball it, make two marks and line up the track. Well, that's yeah. not going to make, not going to get you there perfectly. So, I'd like uh, to see that setup that you have with your centipede and that uh, frame that you made. So yeah, I guess yeah. yeah I'll, send uh, me a picture. I'd uh, like to see it. Yeah, I'll post. I'll, I'll send you a picture or post something on Instagram. But it's and the fact that I could just pick that up, throw it in a small bag, and then put it away until I yeah. need to break down plywood again is just awesome. It is a really nice thing to have. That's so cool. I think that'll do it for this show. Please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions that you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. I want to mention that we have only added a couple of questions in the past several weeks, so we need your questions. Uh, We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings, and of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Hui. Where can they find you? AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. And Guy, where can we find you? Um, anywhere on social media, just search Guy's Woodshop and I should pop up on it. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. See you. See you in a couple. Bye.